You're listening to In Search of Portland. This is a personal journey exploring the Rose City's most famous architectural and cultural landmarks, its forgotten gems, and the dreamers who populated them. My name is Brian Libby, and I've been exploring Portland's built environment for the past 20 years as a journalist and critic covering the city's architecture, arts, politics, and more. excited to share what I've learned and to learn along with you as we talk to a spectrum of creative minds and community leaders about how Portland became Portland and where we're headed. destination is the Portland waterfront at the west end of the Burnside Bridge in the heart of the Skidmore Old Town Historic District. This is really where the city began. At first, Portland was just one of many small settlements along the Willamette River in the mid-19th century, and it was competing with towns like Oregon City and Milwaukee to become the dominant trading center. But over time, as Portland grew, its muddy streets filled with horse-drawn wagons and the first humble storefronts along Front Avenue. Portland won that competition with those other towns. Then as Portland's population grew exponentially over the latter half of the 19th century, gaining wealth from timber and wheat exports, the city built a series of magnificent buildings on these streets hugging the river. They showed off our rising civic ambition with decorative ornamental facades made from cast iron. Yet this stretch of blocks near the river, particularly in Old Town, have also been plagued for generations by poverty and homelessness and addiction which has until recently meant a lack of new buildings here. But to me, the best urban places are where there's a mix of new and old buildings, of buildings and open spaces, of rich people and poor people and everything in between, and a variety of different cultures. That's why I'm a fan of the Mercy Corps Global Headquarters, which we're going to talk about today. It was completed in 2009, and it's the culmination of all these rich architectural and cultural and historical influences. The Mercy Corps headquarters was designed by Hacker Architects, which to me is definitely one of the city's most acclaimed and award-winning firms. The Mercy Corps headquarters has a striking presence along NATO Parkway and along the Willamette Riverfront with its wall of differently sized rectangular glass panels resembling a kind of weaving. But this is not strictly a ground-up work of new construction. It's an expansion of the historic Packer Scott building dating to 1892, making this architecture at Mercy Corps a fusion of the 19th and 21st centuries. The Mercy Corps Global Headquarters is also one of the most sustainable buildings in the city. It was named to the American Institute of Architects' prestigious Top 10 Green Projects list, and it received a top-level LEED Platinum certification from the U.S. Green Building Council. Its offices are arranged around a spacious atrium, giving employees and visitors plenty of access to natural light, which studies have shown improves human productivity, performance, and happiness. To learn about the building's design, how old meets new in the architecture and in this neighborhood, we're going to talk with David Keltner, a principal at Hacker Architects, which designed the Mercy Corps headquarters. This is just one of many exemplary buildings Hacker Architects has designed going back to the 1980s. So we'll also talk with David about the firm's founder, Thomas Hacker, a disciple of the legendary modernist architect, Louis Kahn. And given that this is the home of Mercy Corps, one of the world's leading humanitarian organizations, we're also going to talk with CEO Neil Kenny Geyer about the challenge of helping people in war-torn regions around the world. Even as our nation's moral integrity has been tarnished in the era of Donald Trump, the good people at Mercy Corps are demonstrating what really makes America great, our compassion for the huddled masses of all cultures, religions, and skin colors. Mercy Corps was founded in 1979 to help Cambodian refugees, and today people from all over the world need our empathy and assistance more than ever. Yet Mercy Corps also does something more than give handouts. Under the leadership of Mr. Geyer, as well as founders Dan O'Neill and Ellsworth Culver, Mercy Corps has empowered people through entrepreneurship and self-sufficiency. So we'll talk about these challenges with Neil as they exist both around the globe and right outside the Mercy Corps building itself. In both architectural and human terms, this is where the past meets the future.
Hiltner is a design principal at Hacker Architects and has been with the firm since 1999 as part of a 30-year career. Over that time, Hacker has designed some of Portland's most acclaimed works of architecture, from award-winning libraries and office buildings to theaters, museums, and higher education facilities. Hacker Architects designs buildings that are among the most sustainable and energy efficient in the country, and today they're also leading the way with a new generation of timber-framed buildings. But what I like best about these buildings by Hacker is that the architecture is soulful to me. David studied architecture at the University of Minnesota, so he's a golden gopher. And uh, besides his long tenure at Hacker, he also spent many years as a member of the city's influential design commission uh, for the city of Portland. And he helped lead the team that designed Mercy Corps headquarters. That's why we have him here today. And uh, as the building ce celebrates its 10th anniversary, uh, I'm glad that we have this moment to sort of stop and reflect. So David, uh, thanks a lot for joining us on In Search of Portland. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I'd first like to ask you, um, as it relates to the Mercy Corps headquarters, I'd like to ask you about the building that it grew out of, because this part of town, Old Town, uh, I feel like it's in a way the most valuable collection of architecture that exists in Portland, these cast iron buildings and some of these old brick warehouses and stuff. And, uh, you know, without asking you for a dissertation or anything, what do you know roughly even about the Packer Scott building, like what people were doing there when it began or or what's your impression of uh, it, its architecture? Just if you were to, you know, what do you like about the look of it or anything like that? Yeah, great, Brian. Um, <clears throat> well, we were really interested in the history of that building. Um, when we arrived to the site and were asked to design Mercy Corps' new headquarters, it really was just the Packer Scott building, and mm -hmm. then it was surrounded by a parking lot mm -hmm. uh, at the time where Saturday Market would set up and whatnot. And the building was being used at that time uh, by a really eclectic set of businesses. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to, if you were in Portland and you wanted to go pick up a velvet poster of a Bob Marley, you know, <laughs> concert, um, that's where you went to get that. Or if you needed some wizarding supplies, yeah, yeah, some could, incense, yeah, yeah, some incense, yep. Um, and uh, it was also, it served a little bit as a support for Saturday Market. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there were actually, there have been quite a few modifications to the building, some mm -hmm. really significant ones, especially on the inside, mm -hmm. when we uh, came to it. And we were able to learn a little bit about its history, mm -hmm. a lot from photographs mm -hmm. uh, that we were able to find with the help of the Oregon Historic Society. Oh, cool. Yeah, and uh, one of the things we gleaned from that is that its original use was as a grocery. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, and there were you know images that showed these large retractable kind of awnings that could open up to help mm -hmm. load and unload groceries uh, mm -hmm. into it. And we found some images that showed it during the flood. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and there were actually probably many floods that it would have uh, experienced as well anyway. Yeah, with sort of boats floating around in Ankeny Plaza mm -hmm. and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Really important point in the city. I don't know if everybody recognizes it, but downtown Portland has two different orientations for its kind of grid of streets. Yeah, yeah, kind of north and south of Burnside. Yeah, and that's the point that kind of originates all that is Ankeny Square. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, Ankeny so Plaza. Like, yeah, the point of the triangle almost. Yeah, it is. And uh, actually that fountain that sits um, in that space is also a really important uh, yeah. Portland landmark. Yeah, the Skidmore Fountain. That's its own story. You know, everybody kind of knows the yarn about how Henry Weinhardt proposed uh, having a flow uh, of beer instead of as, as, as water. And, and some of the people involved in creating that fountain are some of the most interesting kind of founding fathers of Portland, like C.E.S. Wood, who is like this writer and satirist who is friends with Mark Twain and stuff. And, oh, uh, the C.E.S. Wood, the, uh, one of the people who like helped choose the artist for the, this fountain. I actually just read this the other day. He was, uh, he came to Oregon in the military and um, he was at the surrender of Chief Joseph and the Nez Perce. And he actually was the one who translated uh, Chief Joseph's speech that ended with the famous, I will fight no more forever. And there's actually a little bit of s speculation that this guy CES Wood may have even taken a little bit of liberties uh, and maybe he wasn't even such a great translator or anything. And, and Chief Joseph is saying something about, you know, not fighting anymore and, and he's done. And, and you almost, I, I've even kind of read that this guy C.E.S. Wood involved in this fountain outside Mercy Corps was, you know, almost maybe going like, hmm, 
I will fight no more forever. Chief Joseph, what do you what do you think of that? You know, that, I think that has a nice ring to it. You know, yeah. <laughs> and so it's like huh. that. That's why, in a way, we're doing this podcast. Uh, uh, well, part of it is because I love Mercy Corps, and part of it was because I love the architecture. But you know, you go to Old Town, there's just all these layers of history there. Yeah, especially that place, um, really loaded with it. And the interesting thing about it too is that that building. For the significant point it has in the city, mm-hmm. it's a very humble building. It's a really humble historic building. If you look at it, there's not a lot of ornamentation on it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really utilitarian in a way. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that kind of set us up in an interesting kind of conundrum about, um, you know, typically um, when we would do an addition to a historic building or be modifying it in mm-hmm. any way, we really work to be deferential to that historic resource. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting to try and figure out how you could be deferential to a building that was already really utilitarian. Yeah. And yet a utilitarian building from 1892 has a level of, of materiality and craftsmanship that, that looks like something more than utilitarian in 2019 in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, our approach to the building was uh, from a position of kind of deep respect for it. And our approach was really to kind of figure out ways to bring it back to its original glory, if you mm-hmm. will. Mm-hmm. Um, when we got there, we worked with Peter Meiser, mm-hmm. who's a really great local architecture, both historian and preservationist. Yeah, consultant on both. The building itself was actually quite damaged, the outside of it. Mm-hmm. Um, through just the weathering process, the, the brick back then was actually pretty soft. Mm-hmm. And uh, people had kind of come in and power washed it over the years and cleaned it with things they probably shouldn't have. And Mm -hmm. as a result, the whole face of it, instead of being a really kind of straight, smooth surface, was just all pitted and grooved. It was almost more of a kind of a landform, if you will. (laughs) So we we did this really extensive kind of restoration process that carefully was replacing certain bricks and Mm -hmm. not others. understanding all the old windows and figuring out a brand new system that would be energy efficient, but Mm -hmm. it would really look a lot like and replicate, you know, the kind of historic windows. And significantly, uh, when the um, building had come under the tenure of the folks that were putting all the kind of small shops and things in it, they had actually taken what was the second floor Mm -hmm. and lifted it up off of its kind of column bearing points so that they could slip in a kind of bonus floor. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, so one of the things we did, we a uh, big part of the uh, of the work on the building was to actually go in, temporarily support that floor, take out that weird kind of intermediate floor and, like, lower it back mm-hmm. to its original kind of height so that we could get what had been intended to and was originally designed to be this really tall, grand kind of ground floor, mm-hmm. which ultimately became Mercy Corps' kind of outreach um, arm right. via the Action Center. Yeah, yeah. And and that had been something I wanted to ask you about in terms of um, figuring out the program and how these two halves, these buildings from the 19th century and the 21st century would fit together and also how you approach it in the sense of designing from the inside out. Because, of course, you know, design is problem solving. And it, could you just talk a little bit about how that started to come together for you? Well, all of our work... Its starting point is always the people that are going to be in the building and Mm -hmm. the place where it is. Both of those were really rich in this case. Mm -hmm. And with Mercy Corps, their whole approach to how they serve is one of kind of going in and having this really deep respect for the places that they're um, going in to help. Mm -hmm. And even the way that they do it, they actually work with people that are already there that are members of the community and help them to realize what they think should happen Mm -hmm. um, in Mm -hmm. those communities. And so the idea of making a new building that was a headquarters for them that was going to kind of try to better the neighborhood by actually taking a cue from from what was already there and Mm -hmm. from what the neighborhood was already doing and what Mm -hmm. the history of the place was seemed really appropriate. While the Packer Scott building was a really, uh, you know, beloved, you know, artifact of our history, it was really made to kind of store stuff in. It mm-hmm. wasn't really made for people. And I think in a lot of industrial parts of cities that are seeing rebirth and renovation on a large scale, they all have that kind of conundrum that on the one hand, we're all drawn to them because they have this kind of beauty, but 
we're actually not drawn to them for their function. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they actually sometimes don't work that well yeah. for being really humane environments to put people. So um, we took very different approaches to how we renovated the Packer Scott building and how we helped Mercy Corps move into that mm -hmm. and how we um, developed the new building and had them inhabit that. So for an example, um, because there wasn't a lot of daylight in the Packer Scott building because of the relatively small windows, mm -hmm. Um, we really isolated where we would have people working to within 20 feet of the outside of the building. And oh, we yeah. used the center of the building as a place for the kind of program that you don't really need daylight for, for, say, bathroom, service rooms, things like that. Right. In the new building, then, and the other thing we did is we looked at their program and how they work. Um, sorry, programs like architecture speak for, yeah. you know, yeah, sort functions. of all the different functions that have to go on in a building. And Mercy Corps had uh, a, a really clear split in the kind of work they were doing where some of the work really relied very heavily on intense collaboration between dynamic teams that were having to understand what each other were doing all the time. And then there were other uh, parts of their organization that really actually needed to have some real privacy that were dealing with legal things and money and, and that sort of thing. And so we saw a synergy there with the old building that because it automatically was going to have this kind of smaller spaces that were more separate, mm -hmm. that that would be a place for those more secure kind of functions. Mm -hmm. And then that reserved the new building to be able to be much more open and connected. Oh, interesting. Interesting. You know, it occurs to me also that, um, you know, there's a an, an evolution going on with regard to the American office in general. Uh, there's this kind of push-pull as to how open people want offices to be. And down to the individual person, it has to do with the amount of personal space that you get to have. If you're giving up a cubicle worth of space, that's a lot more space than one small desk that might exist in an open office. But of course, the argument is that you're gaining in some of these open offices uh, a, a greater variety of types of spaces. Uh, Ten years ago, I don't know if that same conversation was happening, but I imagine a form of it was, and, and, and you were already kind of talking about that as it related to um, some of the private uh, spaces. But um, uh, what do you make, even if it's today, of this kind of um, back and forth drama, or it seems like almost like an ongoing argument amongst people about the validity and the success or lack thereof of, of the open office? Yeah, wow, well, it's a really um, time-appropriate question, uh, Brian. Uh, we're seeing that conversation going on in a lot of the other kind of workplace mm -hmm. that we're doing now. And I think where we've landed on that is a realization that, um, and kind of the evolution, I think, that it's not just us, but anybody really kind of working in workplace now has realized that what people are needing is, real, is, is exactly what you said. It's a real variety in spaces that are available to them, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to the old days where you would just have an ubiquitous open space and assumed that everybody was doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, this building, having the historic Packer Scott building and the new, mm -hmm. allowed us right away to just create an instant kind of diversity of space. And then allowing their program to kind of be flexible in how people utilized it. Um, people were able to kind of find their own space based on what they were doing that best served them. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if you could just talk about maybe Tom Hacker and, and what it was like working with him and what does it mean to be um, somebody who was at Thomas Hacker Architects, say, in the late 90s or early 2000s when he was still there and, and versus trying to, uh, along with some of your partners, guide the firm today. You know, do you see a continuous line and, and how do you feel like it's gone for you? I think one of the reasons that I joined the firm was because I felt that there was, and it, it bore itself out through getting, having the privilege of working with Tom over the years, was that there was always a kind of sense both in the work and, and, and literally us doing the work together that always felt like it wasn't really about us and mm -hmm. it wasn't about our kind of egos or vision for things. It was more kind of looking at... Um, the thing, which is, you know, the institution that you're serving, uh, the, the people that you're serving that are going to live in the building, and looking at the site and the place mm -hmm. and understanding 
the kind of truth and how those two things were going to relate. And that, while it requires a kind of ego in the sense of kind of trusting yourself and having confidence in your ability to read those things, anytime we were around a table thinking about design, you never got the sense that you were there to serve somebody's vision. You were there to serve the vision of the site and of the people that were there. Right. And um, I think that is an infinitely more translatable kind of set of or way of approaching the work than one that is kind of founded around a certain personality or an individual. Yeah, yeah. He he wasn't a uh, isn't never has been a starchitect. It's it's about something almost anti-starchitect about going on a journey um, with some kind of sense of of the greater good. What will go down, I'm sure, is one of the most formative moments in my whole career personally was when I got to go with Tom Hacker to the Salk Institute, which mm. was designed by Lou Kahn, yeah. um, where Tom you know, started his career yeah. and, and, one of and the... worked on it, also worked on that building himself. Oh, wow. And that's one of the masterpieces of American architecture, for those who don't know. It would probably be, uh, I think it may have been named one of the top... 50 American buildings of the 20th century. And and so your boss worked on that. Yeah, and, and not surprisingly so. I mean, I had a almost kind of, well, I had a pretty spiritual experience going there with him. This is this building that's down in Southern California. Yeah, and, San Diego, La Jolla. Yeah, and <clears throat> it's right on the coast. And the building, on the one hand, is incredibly quiet. Um, you don't look at it and see architecture or mm-hmm. see the building itself. It's sort of sets up a set of relationships between the people that are in it and the landscape around it and the work that's going on there mm-hmm. and, 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 and the climate. And those are the things that you're perceiving. Mm-hmm. And in that, there's a kind of humility to the architecture that yeah. I felt a real connection to, that what we do isn't really that important. It's what the relationships are that it creates that is the ultimate Mm-hmm, goal mm-hmm. you arrive at it through this little grove of trees on almost a little dirt path yeah and then you pop out into this incredibly powerful courtyard that has this intense focus out toward the ocean and it frames this magical proportion at the end of the courtyard with yeah. the buildings on the side of it on either side on either side where the sky kind of comes down into that gap between the buildings and meets the ocean in a kind of continuous, Mm -hmm. almost kind of Rothko-esque kind of image that almost resonates um, somehow. And you really don't, to this day, I just have no idea how, but, and this thing is laid out very rationally to serve the programs and they're served very well by the way the building works. Mm -hmm. But what it did for me, it kind of took, that kind of modernist edict that it's all about function. And it showed how art is really something that architecture is also capable of. Mm -hmm. And art in the sense where it's elevating your understanding of your place Mm -hmm. and your environment and where you are in the world Mm -hmm. to a more emotional kind of sensory level. And that was something I took away from me as wanting to kind of serve in the work, understanding that that's what Tom had been doing also. Um, and then also being like really demoralized by it because I'm like, that is so powerful. How will I ever yep. even approach anything like that? Yeah, yeah. You think about Tom Hacker and he was obviously a very kind of brilliant architect and so is Louis Kahn, but all those people have always had people, other people behind them whispering in their ear and contributing an idea uh, or more ideas, and you know, uh, I, that's what I enjoy learning about. Sometimes is is how it really is a team, and that's what it takes to carry it out. Like I think of the uh, maybe the most acclaimed design in downtown Portland is not a building, but the uh, Keller Fountain, and that's designed by a famous uh, landscape architect, Lawrence Halperin. Uh, but really, the lead designer was uh, someone in his office, Angela Della Diva. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, but she really contributed some of the the principal ideas of extrapolating the kind of Cascade Mountains into a kind of modernist sculpture that becomes a fountain. Uh, And and so it's always interesting to uh, remember that uh, uh, there are talented 
artists and individuals leading these architecture firms, but um, sometimes they get, you know, like a quarterback or something, too much of the credit and too much of the blame, I suppose. One of the things I, uh, I know Tong is and, and was like really great at was acknowledging um, the work of all the people around him, not just in our firm, but also just recognizing the significance of the role our clients played mm -hmm. in developing the vision for the work. Um, specifically and with Mercy Corps, um, Neil Kenny Geyer and his staff uh, were just absolutely instrumental in kind of bringing the vision for what that was. And uh, I think this is kind of ubiquitous for Portland in a way. I think we have a, a community of architects that are really good listeners and um, are able to kind of, you know, get their inspiration from that. And I think Tom was just a master at that, uh, at being able to hear in what people were describing things that would be powerful enough to actually drive the design of a place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, and speaking of Mercy Corps again, um, one thing I also wanted to touch upon maybe finally is that we're talking about a, a, an admirably sustainable building that was named one of the top 10 uh, green projects in the United States after it was completed. And I'm interested in your take on, um, you know, how far we've come in a sustainable sense in the 10 years since Mercy Corps, you know, what's changed and what's remained constant about um, the leading edge of a, of a sustainable office building like this? So we received a couple of awards for that relative to sustainability, mm -hmm. and that was back in 2008. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think for us in the Pacific Northwest, we were living in a little bubble. We kind of thought that everyone was, you know, working toward those same goals you know, <laughs> everywhere. Uh -huh. And it was amazing that that year when we went out to kind of receive some recognition at a national level for that building, uh, there were 10, for, uh, 10 projects that year across the nation, and four uh, of those projects were designed by firms in Portland that were within <laughs> three blocks of each other. So uh, we, at that time in 2008, the Pacific Northwest was really the hub of kind of make, you know, trying to figure out how we were all going to do that. Yeah. And I would say that's one of the biggest things that's changed is I think you know, that idea of kind of creating market transformation mm -hmm. through the lead certification process, you know, still around, but at the time was really the only way you could kind of, um, a standard to measure sustainability by. That really now, that market has been completely adopted. So I think the bar has kind of gone up, you know, which is a great thing. People are now looking at completely different aspects of building and construction. Uh, not just energy and stormwater and all those things, but now looking at social well-being, um, physical well-being in the people in, in, in the buildings, um, the living building challenge, the 2030 uh, commitment to carbon neutrality. So th there are a whole lot of different metrics now that people are, are readjusting their view to than those that were around at the time when Mercy Corps was done. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, um, uh, there's so much attention maybe not enough attention actually that's going to climate change and um, some of the data we're getting about how tough a task we have ahead of us and I don't want to sound too overdramatic but kind of changing our architecture and changing our energy or how the world gets saved right yeah absolutely yeah yeah well David thank you so much for talking with us today I really enjoyed talking with you and uh, uh, we really appreciate your time and thanks for being on In Search of Portland thanks Brian is made possible by our show's sponsor, Mutual Materials. They also have really helped make Portland possible since a lot of the city has been built with their products. So that cool brick building, it could be Mutual Materials. And that exposed brick wall designed into a coffee shop or store, it might be slim brick tile from Mutual Materials. And those outdoor spaces with paved patios, retaining walls, and fire pits, those might be made with Mutual Materials too. If you're looking for masonry or hardscape products, I heartily recommend checking out Mutual Materials. If you are a homeowner, you might want to go online and grab their Home and Yard Idea Book, which is filled with project photos from homes and yards across the Pacific Northwest. Mutual Materials, their tagline is, Building Beauty That Lasts.
Neil Kenny Geyer is a social entrepreneur driven by the belief that a better world is possible, even in the toughest places. Since 1994, he has served as the CEO of the global humanitarian organization Mercy Corps, which under his leadership has grown into one of the most respected international relief and development agencies in the world, with ongoing operations in more than 40 countries, a team of over 5,500, and global revenue of nearly 500 million. Fast Company Magazine ranked Mercy Corps as one of the most innovative social change organizations in the world. A native of Tennessee, Neil started his career working with at-risk inner-city youth in Washington, D.C. and Atlanta. He launched his international work in 1980 in response to Cambodia's killing fields, working with organizations like CARE and UNICEF along the Thai-Columbia border. Neil holds bachelor's degrees in public policy and religion from Duke University, a master's degree in public and private management from Yale, and an honorary doctorate from our own Portland State University. We're glad to have him here. Neil, thanks for joining us. Oh, I'm glad to be here as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's impossible not to be a fan of of Mercy Corps and what it does and how it's grown, and uh, we're glad to be able to talk about that and about the the headquarters that stands for all that. So um, I wonder maybe first if you could talk a little bit about just the experience of coming to work in that location in Old Town starting in 2009 at the west end of the Burnside Bridge. And uh, by that, I mean, I guess it's a place with layers of history in a in a a stream of different people coming through. And I love how visible the Mercy Corps headquarters is as a kind of part of the waterfront architecturally. And so I wondered whether it's kind of in a symbolic way or just as an observer there in Old Town. Um, I, I guess one way of putting it is, is what have you learned globally that you can see and use locally? Oh, that, that's a great question, Brian. Thank you. I have to say, first of all, I love our headquarters. I love coming to work at it. You know, it feels great. You know, first, the history in the area is incredible. You know, you hear stories about Skidmore, about a fountain that was used for thirsty horses and dogs. You know, it feels like a European piazza to us there. It's just wonderful to be there. Secondly, as many people know, it's ground zero of Portland, right? It's uh-huh. right smack dab in the middle. We all know that the Willamette divides the city east and west, and the Burnside Bridge divides it north and south. So yep. for us, it's fantastic to be there and and just love it. The building, if you've been inside of it, is open. Uh-huh. It's open space. It's creative. It combines an old building and a new building. So uh, I think we're very, very fortunate to have the opportunity to call that place our global headquarters. You bet. You bet. And uh, what about the experience of going through the design process with Hacker uh, originally? And it was a building or a, a kind of brief to the architects where the, it had to do a couple of different things. You know, it has to be a working office, and uh, we have all kinds of data now about employee and human productivity as it relates to things like natural light and good air quality. But it's also a kind of calling card for the organization and a place where the public comes to visit and to to learn more about the organization. And, and so... How has the design been able to kind of support those things? Yeah, first of all, I would say we had a world-class design team. Thomas Hacker is tremendous. His principals and associates were fantastic. I feel we got the best of what they have to offer and can bring. We're very fortunate. We didn't just go out and find the best architect and design firm here in Portland. Mm -hmm. We found the best in the world or among the best in the world that happened to be here in Mm -hmm. Portland as well. Secondly, Walsh Construction. We had great. Bob Walsh was engaged. He had his daughter on site while she was working there as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was fantastic. SOJ, uh, Shields, Oblitz, and Johnson, they were our project manager. So Mm -hmm. we were very lucky in that regard. And because of that, you know, what we said to them was we want this building to capture our values, our values of teamwork, our values of openness, our values of transparency. Mm -hmm. And the final thing we wanted is we wanted it to really connect to the community. And if you look at the ground floor, you'll see that, right? We have the action center there, which connects to so many, you know, thousands of school kids come through there every year. We have Mercy Corps Northwest, which connects to issues in our own hometown and backyard, right? Uh And then we have an events place where talks and poets and artists come and provide events every year. And then, of course, we open it up to other nonprofits who want to use that space 
for free. So it's our way to, to say thank you to our hometown community, but also to be really connected, to have that connecting mm-hmm. tissue, mm-hmm. which was very important to us. Yeah, and it's uh, interesting to think about it being part of a, a larger catalyst for change when you think about some of the new presences down there uh, around the Burnside Bridge in Old Town when we've got the University of Oregon's White Stag Block there, and I believe we've got an office for Airbnb. And so it's interesting to see how the neighborhood is changing over time, and yet it's very much still a place that that struggles with some of the same challenging issues that the rest of America does in American cities with poverty and, and homelessness and drug abuse. And so you get a kind of window into both what's challenging and and what's exciting about the present and the future. Yeah, that that's exactly right. And in some ways, I would much rather be in the heart of a beating city with all the creativity and also the challenges. That's more who we are as opposed to be in a more sterile environment or in some suburb somewhere, not mm-hmm. the dish suburbs. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, you, you know, you can't help but see the challenges of inequality, of mental illness, of homelessness mm-hmm. every day. I'm glad that we're trying to do our small part. I'm also glad there's tremendous organizations, community-based organizations in this town that are trying to help as well. We Look, homelessness is one of the toughest challenges in the world. We we think we have big challenges in Yemen and Syria, but dealing with the homeless is just as tough. Mm-hmm. And we all know you've got to look address the root causes. You've got to have wraparound services. In this country, we have to care about mental illness as well. Mm-hmm. So we're reminded every day of the importance of our mission. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that reminds me, I believe I read that at the beginning of your career, you were working with at-risk inner-city youth in, in places like D.C. and Atlanta. And obviously, that would have been a different era, but it was, by definition, an urban experience, a very urban experience. And so I wonder what part of those days you keep with you in your work today leading Mercy Corps and, and traveling to some of the most troubled places. You know, for me, when I look back at my early days of working with inner-city gang kids and kind of relate it today of traveling to some of the world's toughest places Mm -hmm. and trying to address issues abroad, um, I think there are two things that are really important and that tie those experiences together. First of all, I learned very early on then that those impacted by a crisis or a challenge, they're always the best agents of their own progress. Mm -hmm. They're always the ones that have to own whatever solution is there, and they're always the ones that have the best ideas. And Mm -hmm. I learned that when I was working with inner city kids, Mm -hmm. and I learned that every time I travel around the world here. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is just the incredible dignity of people. Look, I get to meet some of the world's most exceptional, extraordinary people, Mm -hmm. masquerading as ordinary folks. They Mm -hmm. just happen to be living through really tough times. Mm -hmm. Again, that was true when I worked with inner city kids. Mm -hmm. That's true today when I travel to the Central African Republic or Mm -hmm. to the Democratic Republic of Congo. Mm -hmm. Both of those things are are true, and, and, and they continue to inspire me. You know, you talked about being inspired, and I would imagine it's just that, that uh, people tend to think of where there's a lot of suffering and struggle, but it's also places where there are still rich, vibrant cultures. And so you and the people at Mercy Corps are having to go into the eye of the storm in a certain respect and help people who are suffering and and having a lot of need, but you're also still traveling the world and and absorbing these, these cultures, especially ones that maybe haven't been quite so gentrified and homogenized like uh, Western cultures in some cases have. I think anyone who chooses this line of work, part of the reason that we do so is because we appreciate the full richness of the human experience, the diversity of cultures. And we also see the 99.9% of the things that really connect us and unite us as human beings. Mm -hmm. And so You know, I feel I'm among the luckiest people in the world. Every day I get to get up and go try to do my part to help build a better world. Mm -hmm. And every year I get to travel wide and far to, yes, to some of the toughest places, but also places that have incredible culture, you know, where people still show amazing spirit and grace. So I often feel more blessed and that I get more than whatever I am bringing. Mm-hmm. It certainly feels that way many times. I bet you've had some great meals of people cooking for you uh, uh, a time or two. 
I've had some of the best meals in the world. Look, I get to go to Asia. I get to go to the Middle East. I get to go to African villages where the cooking is authentic. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you more often than not, you know, it's the special grandmother that'll prepare the meal for me. And I, I look, I come away enormously thankful for those opportunities. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, you could walk right across the Burnside Bridge or walk a few blocks uh, downtown and, and be eating food by James Beard award-winning chefs. And, and those are great chefs, but at the same time, you might not do any better um, being in some small, uh, you know, developing world, uh, you know, agrarian situation where that grandmother can cook for you. Well, and both are authentic and original in their own ways, yep. right? That, yep. And that's what makes them so special. Yep, yep. You know, I want to listen to Bach and I want to listen to The Clash. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, you know, something else that I think is important to talk about here is the notion of entrepreneurship and empowerment. And what can you tell us about um, some of the strategies about how to empower people and to kind of teach them to fish and not just give them fish and, and that idea? Yeah, you know, it's thank you for asking that. I, you know, part of the importance of using words like entrepreneurship, social innovation, social enterprise is because I do think all too often the social change world can get stuck in so called tried and true strategies. Mm -hmm. And we need to, you, you know, we need to break out of the boxes. We need to bring new ideas. We need to bring fresh energies. We need to look for new kinds of partnerships. That's how change occurs. Mm -hmm. And in today's world, we need to leverage technology as well. Mm -hmm. And my experience has been that the social change world often lags behind in that regard. Yes, I've seen some incredible energy around social movements, mm -hmm. but actual um, delivery of services, I think there's so much more we can do mm -hmm. to be innovative, to bring ideas, and to leverage technology and Mercy Corps is trying to be among those organizations that embraces that kind of change and embodies it in everything that we do. You bet. You bet. So um, with that in mind, uh, I wonder if you could just give us maybe a little snapshot of, of what you've been working on lately or where you've been traveling. You know, if we were to just kind of take a snapshot of you in late April or in May of, of 2019 and what your, uh, you know, frequent flyer card looks like <laughs> or, you know, what's occupying your time or what you're excited about uh, in your position, uh, could you talk a little bit about just, you know, what you've got going on? As you can imagine, I do travel quite a bit. I, I often say to people, don't ask my wife, but as we know, she's the better known Kenny Geyer. And at this time of year, I don't see her anyway because she's in the state legislature yep. doing the people's business. Yep, yep. But I travel, oh, about 400,000 real miles a year. Um, this year already, where are we now? We're almost to the end of April 2019. Uh -huh. I think I've been to 12 countries already, have made eight trips back and forth across some big ocean. Um, and I've traveled everywhere from Ethiopia to Uganda to the Central African Republic to Niger to several countries in Africa to a country in Asia and, and Colombia. Uh, along the border of Venezuela. Uh, so it, that gives you some idea of, uh -huh. <laughs> of my travel schedule and what I'm doing. Just today, I was on the phone and, you, you know, really talking to our teams in the, the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh -huh. who are on the front lines of the Ebola crisis in northern Kivu and eastern Congo mm -hmm. there. And they're really concerned because there have been 100 new cases in the last five days. There have been more cases of Ebola in the last three weeks than in the previous two months combined. We're not winning that battle. Security is intolerable. A health worker was killed just last week. Mm -hmm. So front and center of my mind is how the international community can bring more attention lift up its game, bring an A-team on the ground, because mm -hmm. that's what it's going to take if we're going to stop Ebola from spreading. So that just gives you an idea of what my year has been like up to now, as well as what my day has been like today. Oh, boy. That leads me into, I guess, what will be my last question is that I, I just like to ask you about keeping the faith. You know, maybe it's that bachelor's degree in religion that I read that you have, <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, really it's that you and uh, the good people at Mercy Corps uh, are, are working all over the world on the front lines of so much, you know, suffering and corruption, environmental degradation and violence. And yet you keep going and you seem to have a good attitude about it. And so 
Um, you know, I feel like maybe there is a piece of advice you could give the rest of us, uh, um, not to be too partisan, but I think so many of us these days feel like we're are, we're a nation in crisis, and uh, um, you know that that America has really lost a lot of its moral integrity, and so it may turn out to be an aberration in our time, but. For those of us who are kind of struggling with despair here domestically or thinking about how the world sees us and that sort of thing, what can you say about um, keeping the faith and taking the long view? Yeah, wow. Great question. Uh, the first thing I would say is that, and I appreciate all of the nice words about Mercy Corps and the people of Mercy Corps, but there, you know, there are a lot of great organizations out there that work internationally. There are a lot of great organizations in our own backyard here in Portland who mm-hmm. are who are doing extraordinary work every day. And so, I always tell people I encourage everyone pick one good local organization, get involved, make a difference. We all can do that. We'll feel better for it. Mm-hmm. And it's important that we do, perhaps especially in these days. Mm-hmm. And pick one international organization and get really involved. You know, obviously you can give money, but give of your time, give mm-hmm. of your energy, give of your ideas cuz I do think when you connect a hungry child in Portland Mm -hmm. with a hurting child somewhere else around the world or a homeless child here in Portland Mm -hmm. with a hurting child somewhere else around the world. You're part of that seamless web of compassion. Mm -hmm. And when you connect it globally, I think Mm -hmm. we have a better chance to build stronger communities here at home Mm -hmm. and a much better world. And final thing I would say is I do think it's true, and this is obviously not original, but I do think that great arc of history does bend toward progress and justice. If we just take the long view, if you look back over time, you know, particularly if you look now, you know, just in the last 30 years, a billion people have come out of extreme poverty. Mm -hmm. We're living longer as a human species. We're living healthier lives. Mm -hmm. We're living less poor lives than ever before. That doesn't mean we need to rest on the laurels. Mm-hmm. We just can't. I think we're going through a tough patch. Mm-hmm. So let's, you know, let's bring determined realism. Let's bring hope. Let's bring urgency. But let's also keep that faith mm-hmm. that this stuff works. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. how progress happens. That's how it's happened for the last thousands of years, and that's how it's going to happen in the future. That's yeah. what I would say. Yeah, you bet. I'm I'm ready to uh, to uh, get right back on the front lines after I hear that. And, and, you know, I do think there has always been a kind of silver lining that I've felt and observed the last couple of years in that people rise to the occasion. You know, um, I, I think of the times I've been on the waterfront in, in Portland or walking the streets of Portland with thousands of other people, um, families, parents and children who all feel concerned the way I do about things that are happening domestically or beyond, you know, uh, times of crisis uh, bring about uh, people who want to do something. You know, it's like the old cliche about the Chinese character for crisis yes. and opportunity being the same character. Maybe there is something in that, In that, uh, you know, uh, maybe we were asleep a little bit about some of the some of the forces going on out there and now we're more vigilant. Yes, absolutely. That's a good way to put it. I would say at Mercy Corps, if I if I might, we have as part of our culture, we say always bring urgency, always bring curiosity, but don't forget joy. Yeah, yeah, I think that's well said. Well, Neil, thank you so much for talking with us. It's really a pleasure, and uh, we all really appreciate what Mercy Corps is doing in the community and, and beyond. Hey, thank you as well. Great to be with you. must be getting near the end of this episode because I said, and there you have it. Thanks very much to David Keltner of Hacker Architects and, of course, to Neil Kenny Geyer of Mercy Corps. I'm a big fan of both of these gentlemen and the organizations they represent. I'd also like to share briefly here another conversation I had recently over the phone with Dan O'Neill, who is the co-founder of Mercy Corps and who is now recently retired. He told me about an experience he had as a young man that started it all. It was 1972, and Mr. O'Neill had just graduated from the University of Washington. Uh, I won't fault him for being a Husky. He began volunteering for the International Christian Missionary Organization, Youth with a Mission, which some of O'Neill's relatives had actually founded. That took him to a variety of places as a postgraduate volunteer, to Africa, Europe, the Middle East. And when O'Neill got to Israel, he decided to leave Youth with a Mission and stay, working on a kibbutz farm for more than five months. 
By this time, it was 1973, and Israel was immersed in the Yom Kippur War, also known as the Ramadan War or the Arab-Israeli War. O'Neill told me, quote, The turning point for me in many ways was that time. I saw what war did to people and to places and things. It was not a pretty sight. I realized that I wanted my life to be about something larger than me, something humanitarian. O'Neill founded the organization that would become Mercy Corps in 1979, exactly 40 years ago. That was, you may remember, a time when the post-Vietnam War refugee crisis was at its height. Ultimately, some 800,000 Vietnamese refugees would seek safe harbor. It's not unlike the hundreds of thousands of refugees from the Middle East pouring into Europe in the last few years, actually. What strikes me about both those times and these times is that it reveals people at their best and at their worst— their bravest and most charitable, but also their most fearful and xenophobic. Here in Portland, we've seen those two sides of human behavior. Oregon has been a long place of migration, be it thousands of years ago by the first Native Americans, or a couple hundred years ago as the first European settlers came. It grew exponentially then with the Great Migration. But Oregon also has a shamefully racist and exclusionary past. It wasn't always a place welcoming to all. So I appreciate as well that Portland has continued to be a place where people migrate to, be it for economic or cultural reasons or because of the natural beauty surrounding us. When I returned home here to Oregon in 1997, after a few years in New York City, I soon found that most of the new friends I'd made in Portland had come here from other places. Pulling up roots and migrating long distances is hard. Obviously, it's more true, more hard, more difficult for real refugees or maybe for the pioneers of a couple centuries ago than it is for, say, some college kid driving across country or flying here after graduation to start a new job. But still, even when you're not fleeing war and poverty, it takes courage to start that next chapter. Portland's population is projected to grow by hundreds of thousands in the coming decades. And with that will come a lot of challenges. We don't want our beautiful place to be overwhelmed. But if we don't welcome people with open arms, if we don't lead well with mercy, we won't be at our best. And at least for me, I love that Portland's downtown skyline has the Mercy Corps headquarters right in the front row. It's not the tallest building, not even close, but it helps make Portland Portland more than any skyscraper. closer to the end of the show, and here's that free resource from our sponsor, Mutual Materials. It's the Home and Yard Idea Book, which is filled with more than 150 pages of project photos from homes and yards across the Pacific Northwest. You can download it from mutualmaterials.com. In Search of Portland is brought to you by Mutual Materials and X-Ray FM. Thanks to our producers, Amalia Boyles and Ed Curtis. Thanks as well to my friends in the Washington, D.C. band, Beauty Pill, for providing me music for In Search of Portland. Their last album, Beauty Pill Describes Things As They Are, was named one of the top 50 albums of the year by both National Public Radio and Rolling Stone magazine. Keep an eye out for their next album, entitled Please Advise. And thanks as well to Nikolai Kruger for providing original artwork for each episode that you can find on our website. You can find all episodes of this podcast at xraypod.com or wherever you get your podcasts.